Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Come in, Stoke Newington. Are you receiving me? How's life? Uh, it's all right. I mean, it's weird to think that by the time people hear this conversation, Super Saturday will have been and gone. Yeah. Have you got any plans? Uh, I think I'm sort of taking it slowly, I think. It's the same here. Um, I'll tell you the two things I haven't really missed during lockdown are structure and seeing other people. You haven't missed them? Not really, no. Those, those are the two things I'd single out, really. So I can't imagine I'm going to go a bundle on... Uh, on Super Saturday. I mean, you've had a lot of structure because of your new job, though. Well, I've had structure, but at home, and I must say, you know, in one sense, it's nicer being at home. But in another sense, um, when I've gone into work, I have found myself more productive. I think this 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 lack of home-work balance, which I find quite difficult anyway, is a problem. I suppose you've always you've worked for a lot home from a long time. Yeah, since. yeah, yeah. Have you heard of the Pomodoro method? Is it your favourite lovemaking technique? <laughs> can can you remind me? It's a productivity method. Um, uh, it's like twenty five minutes on and then five minutes off. So just like your favourite lovemaking technique, then. Um, <laughs> sorry, no. So so have you been applying this to working from home? I haven't really. No. I mean, I like a good Pomodoro, but <laughs> who doesn't? I haven't done the Pomodoro. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I think, I think what I, as somebody who finds not working quite difficult, I think I find the sort of blurring of the, the total blurring of the boundaries is pretty, I find that quite difficult really. But you're good at being, when you go on holiday, you're good at that, aren't you switching off? Only with real sort of, you know, um, do you know Ulysses and the Sirens? Yes, it was based on the Ulysses 31 cartoon series. You know, Ulysses and the Sirens is the Greek myth that he, the the, the, the voice of the Sirens is so beautiful yes. that if he's not tied to the thing, he'll, you know, he'll steer the ship onto the rocks. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, you know, only if I've kind of, there's quite a lot of Ulysses and the Sirens going on, like, you know, not taking my phone, uh, etc. You know, it, it, it requires a hell of a lot of, discipline so what are the sirens in this analogy you know twitter work sort of anxiety i suppose do you know right, what I mean? yeah yeah i do i do know what you mean on that i know today they are list, listing all the countries yes. you'll be able to travel to oh yes i was having a little think i mean i don't think we'll be able to go away this summer uh, which... you've really disappointed me i thought we were going away together <laughs> You haven't invited me. <laughs> you made it sound like we were going due to be going away together, like you were breaking the news to me. <laughs> Sorry, we're not going to be able to go away this summer. <laughs> it's probably as well because I've had a catastrophe. Oh, no, what? Not a passport catastrophe. 
Yes, I wash my jeans with the passport in the pocket. Is that going to stop you going away? I don't know. This is the thing. So I thought if if I was able to go away, um, you you can't get your passport replaced quickly at the moment because of COVID. And I don't know whether it's in a good enough condition to travel with. So it it would be a complete gamble. Are you allowed to? You are allowed, aren't you? It's like you can't take a photo or something of a banknote, but you can... You can, um, or a bar paper, or well, there's some weird thing, isn't there? You pre- paint a picture of a banknote. Anyway, blah. Uh, you, you sh- why don't you post it on Twitter and get some views? Somebody might steal my identity. Oh, that's a good point, actually. See, it looks very dog-eared at the moment. I think dog-eared is all right. You can kind of see the photo and you can see the, the long number. I think it's okay. Number. I think it's okay. What if you and I booked this holiday and then we get to passport control, the two of us, and, and you're allowed to go through and I get turned away? Then I'd say... Good night, Vienna. Well, thanks a lot. You enjoy your solo interrailing. Um, shall we crack on and talk about what we're talking about this week, then? Well, look, this week we're talking about a really important subject, which is about the rise in food poverty during the current crisis. E- even before lockdown began, more than 8 million people in the UK regularly struggled to get enough to eat. And over the last few months, this has got significantly worse. The number of families using food banks doubled in the first months of lockdown, and more than 3 million adults were estimated to go hungry. We're going to be talking about the scale of Britain's hunger problem and about how we can how we can properly tackle it. First, we're talking to John Taylor, who manages a food bank in Brixton, about the huge rise in food poverty they've seen in the last few months. Then we're speaking to Kath Dalmany from the food charity Sustain about what she wants to see the government doing to tackle hunger, including the argument for a new right to food. And then we'll be talking to Uni Chernes about the situation in Norway, which one of the, has one of the lowest rates of food poverty in Europe. We're asking her why that is and what we can learn from them. And our cheerful person this week is screenwriter, director, comic relief co-founder Richard Curtis. Wow. We'll be chatting to him about wow. Make My Money. I know it's a great one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Going to be t- talking to him about Make My Money Matter, which is a campaign he's launched to start a conversation about how our pensions are invested. But we can ask him like a couple of questions about like Notting Hill and four weddings and a funeral. Love actually, love yeah, actually, can't we? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's your reason to be cheerful this week? My reason to be cheerful is a baseball. Oh, I've been storing this one up. So, so basically, my son Daniel had his eleventh birthday recently, and I found sort of looking for a baseball oriented present because he quite likes baseball. A um, a, a baseball. Signed by Jim Lomberg, who you know well, of course. Who is Lomberg? Remind me. Jim Lomberg. Uh, it's called. It says Jim Lomberg, the Impossible Dream, and this is about the 1967 Boston Red Sox baseball team, which was supposed to be kind of going to be rubbish, and they almost won the World Series. They didn't actually win it, but they won the American League, and they did incredibly well. And I think he pitched the last game, and he was well, he was their star pitcher. And for some, so I found it when I was looking for a pre- present for Daniel, and Justine dismissed it as completely inappropriate. He wouldn't know <laughs> who Jim Lomberg was, and you know what kind of present was that so i bought him a book about baseball called 90 percent mental um and um bought this for myself (laughs) (laughs) because i've got uh i've got a some other red sox memorabilia from 2004 when they won the world series which is a uh a picture signed by dave roberts who made a very important steal which is stealing a base and it's and it says dave roberts the steal and so i thought this is like becoming a collection like philately fantastic congratulations it's a pleasure i can't wait to see what you get yourself for your other son's birthday exactly uh what's your reason to be cheerful uh, i've not really done that much this week so i'm gonna go with a um you know a, a, a little one um this isn't critically acclaimed and it is kind of rubbish but i really enjoyed it um the will ferrell rachel mcadams eurovision film on netflix what's it called I, I, I can't, do you know, I can't remember what it's called. It might be called Ice Saga, Fire Saga. Um, but basically they play um, a couple of Icelanders. So instantly... Oh, well, it sounds great. Yeah, uh, I already like uh, it. Uh, who, who, whose dream is to win the Eurovision Song Contest. And, oh, I love uh, it already. You know, it's, it's not a classic in anybody's book, but it, it passed a couple of hours and made me laugh a couple of times. Undemanding. Unlike you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to John Taylor, who is manager of the Norwood and Brixton Food Bank. Hello, John. Thanks so much for talking to us. Hi there. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, 
I wondered if we could start by you just giving us um, an overview of the impact that the current crisis has had on the number of people using your food bank. Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, we, we were already a, a very busy food bank. So I manage a food bank called the Nord and Brixton Food Bank. Uh, I'm particularly involved in the Brixton side of that. But we are one sort of very big project. So we were already feeding around about 10,000 people a year, which is one of the biggest in the country. And I suppose since since the corona and everyone was in lockdown, uh, those numbers have staggeringly just gone through the roof. So our estimations are that we are feeding four times as many. Um, certainly we are delivering around about 80 to 80 people a day. And in terms of um, increases, uh, yeah, as I say, it's about 400 400%, which is um, mind-blowing and is, is incredibly difficult for, as you can imagine, our volunteers to, to run the service. And, and how, have, how have you coped with that? How have you managed with the increased need? Well, we had to, to do some really big changes, um, as you can imagine. Um, one of the great things about food banks is that you can see people face-to-face and you can give them food, but you can also have a cup of tea, have a little bit of a chat, um, find out what's really going on. But uh, because of this, we've had to close the doors to just make it safe for volunteers and for, for our guests. Now, fortunately, we've had um, a, a big, big warehouse, which we've only just sort of refurbished. And we've just partnered with some other local food banks because it's, it's just so much better to do things together. So we partner with Waterloo Food Bank and Boxall Food Bank. And we operate out of this huge warehouse now. And we've had to very, very quickly just transform the whole operation um, so that we do a delivery service. So now there's none of this lovely face-to-face stuff. But what we have managed to do and are just about coping to do is to deliver to every single one of those people, those 10,000 plus, all the extras. Um, How are we coping? We've got some grants. So we've got some grants that's enabled us to um, employ three new staff members. Um, A couple are from... British Gas and they were going to be furloughed and so thankfully British Gas have agreed that they can work for us and um, be employed and these guys do the delivery for us but we've also just had to rely on um, volunteers and it's been quite amazing actually Jeff the amount of people that have um, got in touch initially it was because everyone was getting furloughed and so they had time on their hands uh, now people are going back to work other types of people are coming but there's been so much goodwill um i suppose it's been possible just because of the the immense support from the community and and in terms of the the reasons that people turn to using a food bank can can you give us a, a sense of what those reasons typically are and and how that has changed or been exacerbated in this pandemic yeah, certainly. Um, it, the, the main reasons that people were coming to the food bank traditionally have, have always been, well, certainly for our food bank, but I think this is the same across the country, have been low income. Uh, it has been problems with the benefit system. And particularly for our part of, of London, but I know it's a problem, a growing problem across the country, is is no recourse to public funds. And those things have, I suppose, been exasperated, I suppose, the five-week wait, which we, we see in terms of people claiming new benefits, has we've seen that more and more because more people, as we know, are, are having to sign on. Uh, and, and then just people that have just been hit by unemployment because of um, the coronavirus or the job losses um, have just really taken a toll. John, paint a picture for us of the people who are coming into your food bank and just what, what's brought them to that, to that, to that place? The, the sorts of people that come in i mean it, it's is there was a lady i spoke to i think it was earlier this week she, she used to do pickups in fact she what she does is she picks up children from school and she drops them back and she was doing that five days a week but because of the the coronavirus she's had to reduce that to three um the employers have reduced that those hours and so now she has less of an income and she started to get into debt uh, there was somebody else that i spoke to who was um a security guard and he was working uh, through an agency but he was working in some some retail shops uh, in in the center of london and, and was doing fine but obviously once all the shops shut he lost his income there uh, and then he's had to um 
sign on to benefits and and now that the shops are reopening they're just scaling down because of social distancing so there's no jobs out there for him and, and he's really really struggling um and then there was a, another lady who called me this was a sad story she had four children and her and they all got coronavirus at the same time um so you could imagine the struggle there and what she thought would get her out of this situation or she, or at least temporarily, she gave her car to her neighbour to go and get some food for her. Now, this neighbour, and, and this goes against all the stories of goodwill that you're hearing at the moment, unfortunately took her bank card and drained the little money that she had. Um, all sorts of different stories that, that you hear. Job loss and reduction of hours, as well as a five-week wait, are things that we do keep hearing. When when I talk to volunteers at food banks in my constituency and elsewhere, they're doing an incredible job, but they also always say, we wish there wasn't a need for food banks. What do you want the government to be doing, do you think, to get, to get close to tackling the scale of this problem? What you've just said, that Ed, the, the wish there wasn't a need for food bank, is almost become a, a catchphrase for the Trussell Trust, that the other... The, the, the head sort of body there uh, is, is what we all want as as food bank managers and as, as volunteers. We don't want food banks to have to exist. We we don't feel that we should be doing this. And but um, instead of that, we're, we're sort of increasing our capacity and becoming increasingly part of the fabric. I just fear that there's going to be a almost a tidal wave coming soon, and it feels like we don't have any any lifeboats to to manage this situation. So there are some solutions, I believe. Some of them are things like lifting the benefit cap, because um, although some of the measures that the government's put in place to, to help people, increasing universal credit slightly and increasing um, benefits, the housing benefit, the cap actually prohibits lots of people benefiting from that. So stop something like that. A five-week wait, I mean, we've been going on about that for so long, and um, that needs to change. We need to get people benefits quicker. And then the advance payment is only putting people into debt. So that's not helping by giving people this disadvantage. It's actually a disadvantage. So reform the benefit system. Uh, I think if you look at uh, the growing number of people that have got no recourse to public funds, um, could the government change its policy just for a short time, suspend the restrictions there and let people that have no recourse to public funds have some access to help them through this, this really tricky period? Um, and I suppose the last thing, the, the Trussell Trust's main figures show that there's a 107% increase for families with children. So I would think if they can do something to increase the amount of money that comes in to people that have children, those families, uh, increase the child benefit or whatever it works out to be, I think that's something to look at. Just some thoughts. Um, I don't have all the answers, but perhaps that's the starting point. John Teller, you're obviously doing an amazing job so are your volunteers and your and your workers just to say thank you very much for what you're doing and thanks so much for joining us. Having heard from John, we'll talk now to Kath Dalmany, who is Chief Executive of Sustain, the Alliance for Sustainable Food and Farming. Kath, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Kath, maybe you can start off by telling us what Sustain does and what you've been doing during the crisis. Yeah, uh, Sustain is an unusual sort of beast. It's a an alliance of lots of different organisations. So we are organisations who get together who are interested in better food, farming, fishing, better for us, better for our health, better for the environment, better for animals, better for workers. And when coronavirus hit, we very rapidly recognised that not only is coronavirus a medical emergency, but it's also a food emergency because the whole system was disrupted and uh, we just knew that we had to help in some way. So we reorganised ourselves to be a sort of hub for information sharing, talking to government, talking to local authorities, getting community groups to connect up and share the best practice, saying how can we get money and information flowing in a way that will really help to fix the food emergency aspect of COVID because it got very serious very fast for a lot of families, a lot of households. We've heard from John about what he's seen in term of, terms of the surge in need for food banks since lockdown began. What, what's your assessment of the impact the current crisis has had on, on, on food poverty and hunger in the UK? 
to be honest, it's been pretty horrendous. I think um, a lot of the commentary that's been in the press, of course, has been written by people who didn't go hungry. Uh, a lot of journalists have been able to access food in the perfectly normal way. I'm not blaming anybody for that, but actually the story of the majority of people in this country, and it is a, well, it's not the majority, but it's a, it's a very large minority, have really, really struggled to access food. And that's for two reasons. One is to do with physical constraints. If you're elderly and stuck at home because you're frightened of COVID, then getting access to food in the normal way has been really difficult. And then the other reason has been not having enough money. And that, that reason existed pre-COVID and has got worse as people have lost jobs or gone on to very low income or not been able to do contracts or whatever. Uh, and that has been visible in the food banks. But then a lot of people have been suffering at home as well and not having access to food. So we've got two issues here, haven't we? Isolation and lack of money. And those things were existed pre-COVID and it, COVID has just shown that up in just stark relief. Horrible. And what's your sense overall? John's obviously given us an anecdotal sense of it, of how much worse the problem has got. Well, we've had food banks monitoring what's been going on. I mean, it's been pretty rough. For I've been speaking to a lot of food bank people all the way through COVID, people calling me in tears, just saying we're right up against it here. Uh, and they've been seeing double the number of people, triple the number of people coming, a lot of children, a lot of people who are, were not previously in touch with social services, uh, coming along not quite knowing how to cope because they wouldn't normally ask for help. Uh, and... Those food banks have been absolutely valiant in trying to respond. And there have been some superstar people who've really stepped up to responding. But uh, it's, as I say, it's been a real struggle. If you have the physical inability to get out to buy your food or you're isolated or if you don't have enough money, COVID's been a really horrendous experience. Now, one of the things that John made reference to, and it's been a lot in the public debate, but some of our listeners won't know about it. And it turns out the prime minister didn't know about it and he should have known about it is no recourse to public funds policy. Can you just explain that for the benefit of our listeners and indeed the Prime Minister and the impact it's having <laughs> on, hunger in, uh, on hunger in the UK? Oh, Ed, I, honestly, when I saw the Prime Minister not really knowing what no recourse to public funds meant, I just, it was staggering. It was absolutely staggering. I had to watch the little clip they put out on Twitter about 20 times to tr truly believe that it was possible because he's also been Mayor of London, for goodness sake, and a lot of people... Uh, let, let me explain what it is first. So the condition of no recourse to public funds is what it says on the tin. You have no ability to call down certain benefits. So you can't apply for universal credit, for example. And it is an immigration status when people uh, haven't yet completed all of their immigration process but you can be in it for years and years so you can have leave to remain in the UK but still be on no recourse to public funds for nearly a decade or more uh, so this wonderful MP from East London Stephen Timms who's uh, one of the few people who can scrutinise the Prime Minister what a job uh, and it was on the liaison committee in Parliament during Covid that Boris Johnson was um, being questioned and Stephen Timms basically said, I've got a couple in my neighbourhood who the gentleman's lost his job and he's not being furloughed, so he's got no income. And the wife is, has got a job, but it's very low income. So they're just basically covering their rent and nothing else, like nothing else. So they haven't got any spare money at all. What should they do? And the Prime Minister said, oh, that sounds terrible. And, the, and Stephen Timms said, well, it's because they've got no recourse to public funds. They can't get any benefits. They can't get any support. And uh, Boris Johnson said, but what about universal credit? And as I say, the clue's on the tin. It's no recourse to public funds. You're not allowed to get that kind of support. And that is a deliberate policy as part of the hostile environment ideas of, you know, making sure there isn't benefits, tourism and all that sort of stuff. So I, d I don't mind somebody not knowing, but I do mind when they're the prime minister. I really, really mind because that is a, a large number of people in this country are in that condition so we re we estimate because numbers aren't even calculated so we don't know how to respond properly but we estimate about a hundred thousand children are in families with no recourse to public funds so what does a family do if they literally have no money apart from end up in a food bank where they're also putting themselves at greater risk now in other countries I mean, you know, I don't want to hold up any particular country as doing this brilliantly because nobody's, you know, it's been an emergency, so it's been really hard. But in Southern Ireland, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, everybody got some money in their bank account straight away at the beginning of the emergency. And that meant that this kind of level of, of anxiety, 
inability to access food, inability to keep your children fed was at least relieved, not for the whole of lockdown, but at least for that first stage, people didn't have to go into a wild panic about what was going to happen. And there was a bit of breathing space then for the emergency services to start thinking about how to deal with it. And I think that's a dignified way of approaching it. That's a humane way of approaching it. That's a a better way of approaching it. And, and we have so much to learn. Why did we keep on putting people into a position of hunger by policy? That's a deliberate decision to continue no recourse to public funds during a national emergency when there were food shortages. I'm not going to say I despair. I fight. I think, you know, we have to fight back against that kind of... We are a welcoming, kind nation. We look after people when they're in trouble. I would like that to be the truth of our country. Well, it's uh, it's, it's it's pretty grim, the way this has uh, been handled during the pandemic so let's let's try and shift on to solutions yes absolutely absolutely what 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 are the ideas around addressing food poverty here in the uk yeah because i don't want to get too hung up on the covid food emergency it really has shown up the cracks in our system but it's also pointed to things that should not have been so in the first place so there were lots of people who couldn't afford food before And that wasn't, it's nothing to do with fault or, you know, it's just that because our wages are very low and because people's housing is very expensive and because it's very hard to pay your bills. So those kind of things in policy can be solutions. So it's about poverty, isn't it? It's not just about food poverty. So we can do stuff about controlling costs, rent controls, electricity bills being, you know, all the sort of interventions that will make maximise people's household income. But when it comes to food, wow, we could do some fun stuff. And it could be gorgeous. I'd like to put the joy back into food. Let's, let's stop it being a source of stress. How about access to land for people to do food growing and for horticulturalists to be able to set up really nice fruit and veg growing around towns and cities who really need fruit and veg supply? How about really good jobs in food that are paid well so that people don't have to go to food banks? To be honest, you know, we've heard about people in supermarkets being on such low incomes and zero-hour contracts that they have to go to food banks themselves. That's dumb. Uh, what about really good school meals and whole school food cultures? And interestingly, something that has come out of COVID, what about those school kitchens also producing meals on wheels for the isolated elderly people in their communities, making that kitchen more economically viable and the school be able to make a bit of money on the side from a kitchen that is dormant for the rest of the day and only does the lunch or maybe breakfasts as well for a lot of communities? There are some savvy ways to use our food assets and this newly awakened appreciation of food, because we really have noticed during COVID, haven't we, how much we rely on food people. How can we use that wonderful spirit and support actually to direct it to solve the things that we've remembered are a problem? Let's not let elderly people go back into isolation in their houses going hungry. Let's not let that happen. Let's reinstate Meals and Wheels services. Over the last 10 years, Meals and Wheels services in this country for elderly isolated people have halved. And that is because there's no statutory obligation on anybody to provide them. Let's make sure we reinstate that. Let's make isolation for elderly people and hunger a thing of the past. Now, would you mind talking to me about this idea of a right to food? This is something you you advocate for. Will you tell me what it means and what it looks like in practice? Yeah, I found this quite fascinating because I'm not a lawyer or anything by training, but I have hung out recently with people who specialise in policy and law which doesn't sound like fun, but I've had immense fun with them. They're big brains. So what I quite like about the right to food is it stops being a food poverty victim kind of game. It says, what is it that we as human beings would like our society to be like? Every child has a right to education. What about food? What about one of the fundamental building blocks of their lives and their sense of appreciation and their sense of being welcome in our culture? So if we put it on the front foot, we say, if you have the right to food and the right not to be hungry and also the right to have good nutrition in your life, then we would start feeling more accountable for making that happen. But legally speaking... I think there's also an aspect to this as well, that we can hold people to accountable for making it true. So during COVID, and again, COVID shows us many things about the cracks in our system, I personally worked with the Good Law Project to take the government to court for not continuing free school meals over the summer holidays. Now, of course, wonderful Marcus Rashford came in and scored the winning goal. Love the man. What a wonderful campaign win. 
But during that time, we were also taking the government to court for saying you have ditched on children by taking away the opportunity for them to eat during the holidays because that provision wasn't there for the lowest income children. Now, with a right to food, we wouldn't have to do that because the policy would already have been there and it would be completely natural for government bodies, local authorities to already have made that plan because they would be looking at food provision, the lowest income children, the isolated adults, the isolated uh, elderly people in their homes all the time to check how they're doing. It's almost like a, a kind of a massive social service in its way. And I don't mean to, th to give the impression that the right to food means we're giving away food all the time. That's not the point. What I mean is that we can have the right to call down a responsibilities from people who look after us. So it's a front-footed, positive way of saying, how do we want our culture to be and who can we hold accountable for and how can we draw down the adequate resource to make it so? The, the Marcus Rashford campaign... It, it feels like a, the, the the way that it caught the public's imagination uh, feels like a really good opportunity to have a broader national conversation about the the type of issues you're talking about and all those ideas that you listed. What what how can we make this into a turning point for ending hun hunger in the UK? Well, I think we should think about children because. <laughs> God love them. I was I was having a look at what everybody had said around that time. Obviously, I was involved in a court case, but I was also interested in the way Marcus Rashford changed the tone of everything into just he was so authentically lovely about the whole thing. He wasn't attacking anybody. He was just saying we can't let children go hungry. The simplicity of that is brilliant. And also I was looking, I mean, even Piers Morgan managed to say something positive about it, uh, which was pretty amazing. So he was sort of saying, well, of course, it's bloody obvious. Of course, children should be fed during this time. What I love about what happened around the children's free school wills, how ridiculous that we had to take it to a court case, how ridiculous that a footballer had to stand up in the middle of a national emergency and say, let's feed the children. But I'm glad it happened at some level because it really showed us some core values that everybody agreed on. And in Parliament, there was nearly a massive backbench rebellion uh, against the government, you know, at a time when they've got a vast majority. And it's because everybody has a basic level of decency about them. And I, I really, I, I think we mustn't forget that. I think we must carry that forward into the next stage and say children should never go hungry. Well, of course, elderly people should never go hungry either. Uh, yeah, but let's start with the children because that really, really was demonstrated to us in spades that, that that's how, we want our lives to be better. We want our children's lives to be better. Kath Dalmany, thanks so much for joining us. Well, finally, we're going to speak to Uni Shanez, who is a senior researcher on food policy at the National Institute for Consumer Research in Norway. Uh, Uni, hello. Hello. So let's let's talk about the scale of food poverty in Norway. Now, obviously, the, the population is much smaller than in the UK, but how, how does the scale of food poverty compare? Well, obviously, I haven't studied... Um food poverty in the UK that much. But uh, from what I know, the scale is much smaller. I did uh, a comparison with um, Australia, and there uh, what was characterized as um, food insecure were about 16%, I think, or a lot. And then in Norway... The, the figures are very uncertain, but 1% to 2%. So much so more, smaller. Much smaller. Now, no Norway isn't without its problems on food poverty, but I wondered if you could just give us an idea of where Norway sits as a country, maybe even if it's just compared to other European countries. Well, uh, I don't think there is any systematic comparison and, and uh, how to measure this is also difficult. But as far as I can understand, Norway, perhaps together with Denmark, they have the, the lowest uh, extent of, of food poverty in, in Europe. And, and is the reason that that scale is smaller in Norway is due to the the way society is structured and structured you know the emphasis on inequality and you know the strong welfare state i think so there has been more emphasis on equality on uh, universal social security 
and uh, we have um, fewer working poor. But the uh, neoliberal system with more restrictions on social security and uh, lower wages for the poorest, that, that's emerging, and, and more uncertain jobs, that's emerging here as well. But uh, again, the scale is, is much smaller. And what is the situation with food banks in Norway? Are they, are they relatively uncommon? Yeah, well, I think in all towns and cities, there are food banks. But, uh, and, and the town I live in is, is an old industrial town. And here there is quite a lot of poverty. And we can see people depending on food banks. But, but it's, it's not that many. And most people can afford some food. And it might surprise our listeners to hear that food poverty is even more of an issue in Finland and Sweden. What, why is that? Uh, it's, yeah, I, I should say it's, it's less than it is in the UK, much less. But it is more than in Norway. And in, Finland has, uh, for a long time, historically, had more poverty, more uh, higher unemployment rates and, and a higher inequality as well. Uh, in Sweden, it's been a turn in recent years, 10 decade, 15 years, something like that, with more restrictions on social security, with more uns- less protection of uh, workers, so more uncertain jobs, pre- an emerging uh, precariat. And... One of the things that has become so apparent in this crisis, and it was apparent before, is the holes in the safety net in the UK. You know, people have to wait five weeks for universal credit. Uh, There's a system called no recourse to public funds for certain people who've come here uh, as immigrants. uh, And and it's a condition of them being able to stay. Um, A whole range of other issues, personal debt, um, benefit sanctions, Obviously, the Norwegian welfare state has many fewer holes. Where are the holes, though? I think you're pointing to the same holes. They may be smaller, but it's the same holes. So it's immigrants, both um, uh, immigrants, um, refugees uh, or asylum seekers uh, and uh, people coming here for work. People who are expected to work and then they can't and they're not allowed benefits for a while. So uh, it, 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 it's the same thing. It's just, uh, I think, the, the size, the scale is, is smaller. On this podcast, we're very keen to be cheerful and it may yeah. not look like it from a Norwegian point of view, but obviously you are, that uh, there are holes in the safety net, but it's much smaller holes than here obviously we're not saying the norwegian system is perfect but but it's better than ours ultimately what should other countries learn from places like norway about how to combat food poverty what at least in terms of what you're doing right i was thinking about that and i think a key here is that there is still uh quite um a bit of universality in the Norwegian system. Targeted systems tend to be uh, more restricted and those most in need tend to miss out for some reason. So uh, I, I think universality is, is, is the key here. There's another thing that I think is... Important and that is that there is a constant push from labor unions. So, labor unions in Norway are still quite strong and they make demands on, 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 uh, for example, income replacement. Well, Uni Shernes, do, do I just say tack? Yes. I know in Swedish it would be taxomike, but um, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. Two, two now you're tack. just showing off. Yeah. Two's and tack, a thousand thank yous. 
<laughs> tooth and tack. Uh, yeah, that's great. To- tooth and tack. That's yeah. good. Only, uh, thank you so much for talking to us. Tooth yeah. and tack. It, it's been a very interesting talk, so thank you. So what did you think? Well, you know, it, it feels shameful that food poverty exists in this way in this country and it's really been brought into focus i think by the the current crisis i do think even though i think a lot of what we heard in the episode was tough to hear there was stuff to be optimistic about i loved hearing from john about the 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 enthusiasm of people to get involved with food banks and and trusts working in this area and then it felt like kath had a whole laundry list of ideas on how to fix the problem which we could get behind i'm also really pleased we did it as an episode you know because john harris the guardian journalist had a piece about this recently that this is an issue that you know maybe it was talked about in the context of marcus rashford and his campaign but it, it doesn't really get the attention it deserves and you know, it's just awful. I mean, absolutely shameful, as you say, that you've got millions of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids who are having to sort of skip meals. Um, I think it's 200,000 kids estimated to be skipping a meal, having to skip a meal um, because their parents, you know, couldn't afford to feed them. And and I suppose the thing I take from this episode, there are lots of good ideas, as you say, but fundamentally, why does Norway do better than us? And Uni was, you know wasn't saying Norway was perfect at all because they've got basically a strong safety net. And unless you have a strong, you know, welfare state, I mean, this is the consequence of having a safety net full of holes because then lots of people fall through it. And then when a crisis hits, um, people really fall through it, you know, in a, in a very extreme way. And, and you know, if building back better means anything, it means addressing this, this situation that, that in 2020, we've got so many people you know, who, who can't afford to eat in our country. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you've got thoughts about what you've heard on today's podcast, you can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com and you can then work out how to email us and you'll also be able to subscribe to our excellent newsletter Uh, this one comes from ellie coden saving the arts but it is entitled hey ed and jeff ellie here from a live music venue in dalston hope you're well i've been listening to your podcast since the very first episode jeff still waiting to hear the end of the leisure center story and i'm a huge fan i've come to most of the live shows as well i love that your latest episode was about saving the arts but if i may make a perhaps selfish comment what about music venues Mm. everyone keeps talking about the theater uh, but no one seems to be standing up for live music as I'm sure you both know, it's a huge industry, both in terms of generating revenue in the UK, to be one of the most famous exports the country has to offer. I'm utterly heartbroken. There seems to be no plan whatsoever for music venues to reopen. And also as a self-employed programmer, I'm absolutely terrified of what will happen to me after I get the final payment from the self-employed scheme in August. And I really wish more people highlighted our cause. We're all feeling completely forgotten and hopeless. Uh, 
I imagine that you won't be doing any more arts-related episode for now, but I'd still like to urge you to look into it. Jeff, I imagine you of all people will sympathise. Well, we both do, Ellie. It's a really, really important point, and we're really grateful to you for raising it. Yeah, absolutely. And quite a few people actually on Twitter and elsewhere asked if we could do something around music. So it's it's something we're we're thinking about. We've got a few ideas around that. And um, and onto the subject of your tricycle, Ed. Oh uh, yes, the long running saga. We received an email from Andy Coulson, possibly not that one. Um, yes, who says. I fear I'm going to scupper Ed's trike plans here. Um, oh, a no. bike is more stable once it's moving, whereas a trike is less so. Have a look at trike racing, and particularly when they corner. I'm a keen cyclist, but trikes scare the what's it off of me. Um, one alternative might be a wow. recumbent trike, where the two wheels are at the front and the and use the steer like these, and then he gives us a link. He says, also, your centre of gravity is lower, so more stable. Good luck, and hopefully see you on the road at some point. I mean, can you see me on a recumbent trike? I think that might be a bridge too far, really. What do you think? I, d- I don't see a big difference between you being on a recumbent trike and, I mean, what does it matter if there's two wheels at the front or two wheels at the back? I just don't know. You're quite low to the ground, aren't you, in a recumbent trike? Well, where, where are you up to trike-wise? Um... Mm. Been a bit cagey this week. Last 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 week you were all guns blazing, searching for stabilizers. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's sort of in. We're in a sort of slight holding pattern. Um, okay. I think it may happen. It may happen. But 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 Stuart Hendry might be the answer. Well, Stuart Hendry has sent in a wonderful bit of Photoshop. He's photoshopped you, Ed, into a Sinclair C5, and you you look like an eighties detective in this I picture sort of do really do you th- i mean it's quite an interesting sh- sort of shirt sort of ju- jumper white shirt combo what is it crockett and tubs yeah there's definitely a sort of miami vice yeah uh, miami vice vibe to it but can i just say i'm hugely impressed by the quality of photoshop that the reasons to be cheerful listeners are capable of when when we call upon them we had you know uh, um Ed and the Millibands uh, a while ago, didn't we? The, the 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 you as a goth, which was really exceptional. Yes. And now this, if anything, has uh, Ed and the Millibanshees, wasn't it? Like Susie and the Banshees. Yes. And, and this, if anything, is up to the ante. So we should do like Tony Hart used to on Vision On and Take Heart. We should have a gallery every week of the listeners' finest photoshops of Ed. I mean, this is a pretty good one. I, I mean, the C5 is a, it continues to be a mystery to me as to why it wasn't more successful. Ahead of its time, like you. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. Well, our cheerful person this week, I am delighted to say, is screenwriter, director, activist campaigner richard curtis hello it's very very good to be here well it occurred to me um when when we heard you were coming on to the podcast that ed has a lot to thank you for personally does he is that, is that right yes because of course you you were the 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 man behind live eight which was this great campaign to put pressure on global leaders to to make poverty history but what other significance does live eight have in your life ed Oh, my great romance with Justine. Yes. We didn't actually meet at Live 8, but, well, but it you was were obviously early... You were obviously otherwise engaged if you were in the middle of a great romance. It was an early date. How did you know, Death? I, I, I remember reading it once and it just stuck in my head and I thought, oh, so that that was where you said in an interview you fell in love with yes, your wife. Yes, yes. And, and Rich, Richard is responsible for that. He oh, is. That Credit is. to Richard. That's incredible. Ed, what's your kind of key romantic tune? What makes you, when you hear it, you think I'm in love? Well, let's hope, red flag. let's hope it was something from Live Aid. Let's hope it's I Don't Like Mondays. Shit. <laughs> I don't quite know. Now you've put me on the spot here. Fix you. Uh, um, Long and winding road. Uh, well, I tell you what, it's not Live Aid, but I picked it on Desert Island. This is, do you know Josh Ritter? Yes, I like Josh Ritter. We like a bit of Josh Ritter. Okay, all right, Josh Ritter. Richard, before before we start talking about Make uh, My Money Matter and, and the campaign, I've got a few, a few things uh, that 
I'd, I'd like to ask you. My first one is, was the Prime Minister in Love Actually Labour or Tory? Can't say. <laughs> uh, that was the whole point. We kept it level. But um, I, I think the presumption was that he was probably um, Tory, uh, although I don't like the sound of that. So uh, I'm saying he was Lib Dem. Okay, very, very diplomatic, very diplomatic. Um, and and I also wanted to ask you, is how, how does it feel, that film specifically, the, there are things like the scene with the flashcards, which Boris Johnson then used in the run-up to the, the election last year. How, how does it feel to see that moment living on in such a way? Oh, do you know what I mean? When you write things, weirdly... Uh, they are a bit like children. They run away from you and do what the hell they want. Um, so I often just consider myself, I mean, I particularly feel this about Blackadder, which I, you know, remember so little about. Just the idea that I've got this child, this seed I sowed 35 years ago that seems to still be um, popular. I, I'm, I feel just rather sort of um, puzzled and proud about how my um, progeny are doing. We should talk about uh, the Make My Money Matter campaign. So do, do you want to run us through what, what the campaign is and what it is exactly that you're calling for? Yeah, no, and I, I like being on something called Reasons to be Cheerful because I think that we're very much living in an era. I mean, you mentioned um, Live 8, and I do feel that I've kind of swung from comic relief. I mean, I still believe in these things, which is us giving money to people to help and may build a better world. And then, you know, we very much went through the period of Jubilee Debt Campaign and uh, Live 8, expecting governments who have so much money to do something to change the world. But certainly my kids and young people now, very keen to do stuff themselves. What can I actually do? So the reason I'm cheerful is that in this campaign, we've found a thing which next to the clothes you buy, the food you buy, the way you travel is a real lever for change. So the revelation here is our pensions are invested. I didn't even really think I realized that. They're a big chunk of money. It's 3.1 trillion. Our aid budget is 14 billion. Our pension pot is 3.1 trillion. So what we're just trying to do in this moment is just say to people, have you checked where your pension is? Because your pension could be actually building wind farms it could be building affordable housing it could be discovering vaccines it could be doing amazing things supporting the boldest and bravest the most diverse the most equitable organizations and what a waste if you don't ask that question and push a bit so i think it's a really optimistic campaign saying if you make a shift if you ask the right questions Every single day of your life, you could be working with a pension. That means that you'll inherit your pension in a world that isn't on fire, in a world that fulfills all our dreams. And, and the truth is that most people don't take much of an interest in these things, do they? And the pension companies sort of end up just doing what they like. And therefore, if you could get some people to take an interest, it could have a massive effect. Yeah, and it's definitely an open door, Ed. You know, this is what I've found. Uh, you know, when they did a, 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 a opinion poll about this, you know, over 50% of people said that they absolutely wanted their pensions to match their ethics. Quite a lot of people said they'd put more money in their pensions if they matched their ethics. Uh, and I think that it's just a real big nudge. You know, it makes people feel better. It'll make the pension companies move faster to what's definitely a financial opportunity. And it'll encourage the government, as it were, to be more muscular on trying to make sure that there aren't laws that make trustees think their fiduciary duty is only to deliver more profits, even though the irony is actually the ethical funds are making more money at the moment. And the big question, Richard, or a big question is how? Um, tell us, tell our listeners how they can do this. Because, you know, sometimes these things can feel like a good idea in principle, but then how do people get around and actually do it? Yeah, well, you know, for most people, they get their pensions through work. And there's definitely someone in the people you're working for, in the company you're working for, who knows the answer to these questions and who deals with them daily. So I think the big thing is 
go to the person who's in charge of finance and who knows most about your pension and say, can we please have the information? Can I find out, you know, where we are? The most, you know, for me, the transformative moment here was a TED talk by Dr. Bronwyn King, cancer doctor, oncologist, had her first meeting with her financial advisor when she was 35 and found out that three out of the 10 things she was investing in were tobacco companies. So she suddenly realized I've actually killed more people than I've saved during the course of my career. So I think the thing is, ask the questions and then be bothered to do the three next steps uh, that will take you, you know, towards something that's profoundly satisfying. I've done it uh, and I feel good each day for having done so. And one of the things that is really important in this respect, and you've already made reference to it, is around renewables and fossil fuels and so on. This is very much part of your campaign, isn't it? That, that using a combination of divestment and shareholder activism to drive the transition to, to, to net zero emissions, to drive the green transition. Yeah. And, you know, if we push on this, it's moving faster. Mark Carney is, you know, being charged basically with making sure that every investment has a temperature and a carbon net, you know, carbon marker on it. So you'll actually be able to say what, what my pension fund is it aiming for zero carbon by 2030? I want it to. I mean, for to halve by 2030 and zero carbon by 2050, I want it to. What temperature of a world are we going to be in by the time I inherit my pension? You know, I've heard people say that if the temperature stays at 3.5, there'll be no insurance business because they won't be able to do their job. So it's in everybody's interest. And I think that's going to be the first thing that really gives us the right information and allows you to make the right choices. It's a huge environmental thing, but it's also, you know, about child labor. It's about clean supply chains. It's about diversity, equity, proper pay. All of those issues are eventually going to be visible. Um, and we should start showing the pension companies now that that is definitely what we want. And if people go to your website, makemymoneymatter.co.uk, they can it's a great website and they can see, they can learn about what the difference they can make, pensions yeah. with intention. Yeah, there are some um, fun things there. There are some little films to watch that nudge you in the right direction. Uh, they can sign a petition, which we're trying to pull together to try and make sure that the changes happen faster. Uh, and increasingly, and we're just about to make a series of films, as it were, showing what the process would be whereby you could make that change. So, yeah, definitely go, definitely go to the website. And finally, Richard, what's the next thing we should look forward to from 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 you? Is it Mamma Mia three? Is that happening? Oh, wouldn't that be? I mean, what would be the plot of Mamma Mia three? There's still um, plenty of songs you haven't used. I couldn't believe you didn't use the the day before you came. Oh, the day before you came. My particular favourite one, Happy New Year. Um, yes, which is which is such a masterpiece. Uh, no, I don't think it's going to be Mamma Mia three. Um, I'm actually working on an animation set in Suffolk. So I'm actually practicing on a new craft, which is rather good fun. Uh, you don't have to cast uh, actors in the same way. You can actually get the animated figure to do exactly what you want, unlike Colin Firth. I mean, look, <laughs> can I just say, Richard, I know this is slightly sort of off beam, but if you're looking for a Wallace, I'm available. Yes, I tell you what, what a money saver that would be. Uh, we could just put a bit of clay on your face and then get you to say the lines. Well, you said the, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me. Richard Curtis, thank you so much for joining us. Well, look, great. It's so great. that the, the, I love the name of the thing. I love the fact that you're looking at all the progress that there is. I'm so optimistic that we will build back better. I, I kind of keep looking at the NHS and thinking that's what came out of World War II. You know, there is a real ability to be radical post a crisis and... I hope that pensions and business and the environment and mental health, that they'll all benefit with a, with a reset. Great. That's a good note to end on. Richard Curtis, thanks so much. Lovely to see you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. We are in the outro. How exciting uh, hearing from Richard Curtis. I'm off to watch Live 8. You're going to try and spot yourself in the crowd. Yep. Um, actually, I didn't really want to say, but... Um, it was Angels, actually, which I associate with Live Aid, the Robbie Williams song. A romantic uh, that, Was it a romantic moment in your was. life, swaying along was, to Angels? But the, when the, the communal sing-along, but the trouble is it's sort of become, it's a bit sort of, people are a bit, people are a bit sort of 
People are a bit contemptuous, aren't they? But to be fair, when you sing along with that song, you, you sing We're Loving Engels instead. Exactly. Exactly. That that's the key thing. I think that all I think that I think that buys me some credibility, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, thanks to Richard for, for being our cheerful person on the podcast this week. Also to John Taylor, to Kath Delmeny and Uni Shernes. My Norwegian pronunciation, just just perfect there. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Emma Caution produces the podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Jeff Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed does the music. James Deakin does the idents. And the artwork is produced by... Henry Cole. Just wondering about this this character you just mentioned there. This Jeff, Jeff Lofthouse. Did I say Jeff Lofthouse? Yes. Yeah. In the context of what? I think you meant to say Gail Lofthouse, but you've obviously got me <laughs> me on the brain. That is so weird. Jeff Lofthouse is a former MP. Oh. It reminds me of that time when I think Evan Davis was doing an interview with Hillary Benn, and he said, now he's the chairman of the Brexit Select Committee, Hillary Big Ben. <laughs> or, of course, any number of times when uh, Jeremy Hunt has appeared on the Today programme. Maybe it's time for the goodbyes. Yeah. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Gail Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> <laughs>